Listeners, welcome back to another episode of your favorite literary podcast, Weird Era. I am very pleased to be joined today by Lindsay Wong to discuss her collection of short stories, Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality. Lindsay Wong is the author of the critically acclaimed, award-winning, and best-selling memoir, The Woo Woo, which was a finalist for Canada Reads 2019. She's written a YA novel entitled My Summer of Love and Misfortune. Uh, Wong holds a BFA in creative writing from the University of British Columbia and an MFA in literary nonfiction from Columbia University. She currently teaches creative writing at the University of Winnipeg. For our listeners who have yet to pick up a copy of Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality, living forever isn't everything it's cracked up to be. Hearts can still break, looks can still fade, and money still matters, even in eternity. The ghosts, zombies, and demons in this collection are all shockingly human, and they're ready to spill their guts. Vanity, love, and tragedy are all candidly explored, as the unfulfilled desires of the dead are echoed in the lives of modern-day immigrants. Story by story, the line between ghost and human, life and death, becomes increasingly blurred. From Shanghai to Vancouver, the characters in this collection haunt and are haunted by first loves, troublesome family members, and traumatic memories. Intertwining horror, the supernatural, and mythology tell me pleasant things about immortality, riotously critiques contemporary life, and fearlessly illuminates the ways in which the past can devour us. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to start this interview uh, by first mentioning that our Weird Era co-host and founder, Sruti, uh, interviewed you recently for The Globe and Mail. She touched on something early in uh, in the article regarding Asian humor and how it can tend to be vulgar and very blunt. You responded by saying something I thought was so interesting, quote, there are no Victorians in Chinese culture, and so it's very normal for people to talk about their bowel movements at the dinner table, right? The body is funny and it's full of horror. Could you expand on that idea uh, just a little bit for our listeners in, in a culture that can sometimes come off as as rigid and very traditional in a lot of ways to outsiders? Does a sense of humor offer um, a kind of leniency to counter that? Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, growing up, you have people just saying whatever they want. It's a very unfiltered culture. Um, I remember my aunties and uncles, as soon as they saw you, um, they would just like comment on your weight or whatever you look like. Um, and then as a kid, you'd be like, oh, that's not very nice. Um, but then that sort of became, I guess, the basis for how I would think about people. But then, of course, like when you go out into the world, you know, you're in Canada, you're polite society, you can't say whatever you're thinking. So it becomes that double filter and that standard. Um, And I think it's really funny that we always see Asian people as really meek and submissive and polite. And in many ways, um, it can be. I mean, to outsiders, we're so polite. We're like, oh, would you like, you know, the third slice of pizza or whatever? But behind closed doors, you're just like, you're fat, you know? Um, so there's so much body shaming involved, right? You're just, you just don't see it. Um, and I think this book, I wanted to really showcase that, um, juxtaposition and all these sorts of, sorts of like contradictions, um, because they're saying something to you, to your face, but you know, 
when you're, when you're away, they're just calling you all sorts of names. And I think that's something the characters are always grappling with, or at least I'm always thinking about that. I'm always um, being like, should I say that? Should I not? Is it inappropriate? You know, where's that filter? It's funny because it is, you know, like selling the book. Obviously, I'm a bookseller first and foremost. Um, I love recommending this book and I love recommending it because it is kind of people are always surprised when, when I tell them kind of how blunt the humor is. It's borderline fart jokes at some points. You know what I mean? Is that, is that also, that's, the cultural side of it as well, just having that really open kind of candid, gross discussion. Oh, yeah. Like, there's no holds, you know, no barriers to what's okay at the dinner table. Um, you know, there's like, we had, I mean, I remember having like aunties and uncles, they would, you know, talk about parasites growing up because they grew up in these impoverished conditions. And, you know, you're eating and you're just like, oh, that's kind of gross. And so I think I've developed this really... I guess this resistance to knowing like what's tabooed and what's not tabooed. Um, and I, so I think a lot of that is that grossness there. And of course, I think when people see me, they see, you know, um, not very young, but you know, this small Asian woman and I'm, I think I am polite. And I think when they get the book, there's just like a little bit uncomfortable or shocked because I don't hold anything back. From that same interview, uh, Srudi and you talked about how immortality is not really something to yearn for, um, but instead something to be feared. Uh, I really think it's most evident in the title story, in which a courtesan from 17th century China cannot manage to die after she ingests copious amounts of this magical flower. Um, we meet her in modernity when she is, I think it's 380 years old, and she is literally and grotesquely falling apart. Um, I two-parter for this one where would you say this story has basis or foundation in in mythology or legend and why did you choose this as the title story for your collection that's a good question um i think the answer the first one is that um there's a lot of immortality with chinese mythology um you know you hear stories about the emperor wanting to live forever. People are always obsessed with youth. Um, and I think Chinese culture especially is really um, invested in physical appearance, especially for females and, and female beauty. And so that's something I really wanted to explore. And of course, in pop culture, we see vampires. They want to live forever. Um, and it's glamorous. And, you know, you have these teenagers who get to live forever, but you never see a 70-year-old woman who gets <laughs> made into a vampire and gets to live forever. And I, I assume that, you know, our bodies aren't going to last. Um, something's going to happen. Um, and I just wanted to play on that comedy and absurdity of it all. I mean, you know, what if your body was falling apart and your your brain is still intact? That's that's terrifying, right? You're so, you're fully conscious. And your eyeballs are just and melting out, that, like... <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> like, what are you supposed to do, right? Like, there's no one you can ask, right? And that's, I mean, that's a very lonely and frightening existence. I'm sure you can Google it, right? <laughs> so I think that's a lot of my fiction is asking, what if this happened? What if the most terrible, horrible, you know, most absurd situation happened? And I don't want to be that woman um, in the story. <laughs> and I think this became the title story by accident. Um, I think when I'd written all of this and we'd pulled out the themes and then it turned out 
I was writing um, about people who live forever, whether dead or alive or wanting to live forever. And this seemed to be fitting about, you know, our culture and, and beauty and, and, you know, just being a woman based on your appearance. I think that was a theme that was really prominent um, throughout. Um, and I do also just kind of want to talk a little bit more about the, um, about the title. I love that it's long. It reminds me of like Fiona Apple and how she just kind of unabashedly wrote her album titles as like full self-contained 10-line poems. Um, what were you, if anything, trying to convey with a title that's lengthy, that has a mouthful like that? I always love long titles <laughs> because I think I'm a long-winded person when I write. Not in, not in real life. I think I give really short answers, but you know, when I'm writing, um, like my first book, the memoir, the woo woo has this really long subtitle that I sometimes like, I can't even remember. Um, <laughs> and I think with this one, we had called it careful dying. Um, but everyone said it sounded like assisted suicide mm. book of nonfiction. And so I had to go back and come up with 17 different titles. And then for some reason, um, tell me pleasant things about immortality just stuck out to me because that just seemed like this was the theme of the book or what a character would say, right? Because, you know, we want people to tell us good things when it's horrible, at least, you know, to convince ourselves. Otherwise, it's terrible, right? <laughs> Well, yeah. Life is horrible. I was going to say, you know, the, the 17th century courtesan would not have a lot of pleasant things to say about immortality if you'd asked her. Yeah, we shouldn't ask her, but someone else might have something nice to say, like a 17-year-old vampire. <laughs> fair, fair. Um, so yeah, we have talked about how the collection is is very funny. It's full of humor. I think it is one of the strengths of the book. And I love that horror as a genre can kind of really toe the line between true darkness and um, a kind of levity in existentialism. Where would you say this collection exists between those two ways of experiencing horror in media? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. I think for me... Um... This, I wasn't actually thinking about writing a horror collection mm, in, in many right. ways. Um, I was thinking about trauma and how it really affects people, um, especially women of color, mar- uh, marginalized people. And, and then I guess horror became that lens of looking at it um, because so much of every day is almost a horror story for so many people. And so um, I guess what people have told me, and I guess marketing was like, well, you know, it seems like, it's a collection of immigrant horror stories because that's the easiest way to talk about it. Um, so people can understand. Um, but in so many ways you can look at it and, and see that this is, you know, recording of trauma for everyday people, but there are elements of horror. There's elements of satire. There's elements of fantasy in many ways. So I think it's really about what, how we take these themes and how we take these, I guess, metaphors, right. And apply them and, and, because so many people have read it and they see something very different. Right. And then, of course, there are people who are like, I don't understand this book. <laughs> it makes zero sense to me. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so I think, I guess, in many ways, I, I think it's just really a story about trauma and what we inherit and then how we move forward as, you know, 
um, woman of color. Yeah. I mean, I, I will also want to talk about that a little bit more because I have, you know, we've been doing this podcast for a few years now. I love horror. I love kind of the exploration of, like you said, trauma, um, it offers, a question that I've asked several of my horror authors that I've interviewed, um, does writing horror, I mean, I, I mean, and I know you just said that like you weren't really intentionally setting out to write horror. Um, but would you say writing within the parameters of horror, maybe ever act as a bomb for you to counter stresses, uh, of living with the knowledge of mental illness? Or does that come after the fact? Yeah, I think there's something to be said about it because so much of horror is that absurdity. Um, because, you know, it's so over the top. It's grotesque. There's gore. You can sort of do whatever you want to your, your characters, right? Um, and there's something about it, I think, that acts as a catharsis. Um, you can say so much about the emotional truth of life and, and what you're thinking, I think, within the horror genre than you could say, for example, in memoir or personal essay, um, because you're so limited by facts, right? Um, there's something about the horror genre. You know, it is a genre. There are some, you know, formula conventions if you want to, but it's fairly unconstrained. There's no rules, yeah. right? anything can happen, right? It's almost like a dream logic in in so many ways. Do you as an author worry about re-traumatization when you're writing stories like this for yourself? Um, I try not to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I think, um, writing for me, it is an outlet, but at the same time, you know, when I'm writing, I don't, it's an act of distancing in many ways, you know, to really make sense of what I want to say. But also at the same time, I don't want to be left alone with my thoughts, right? right? It's it's too scary. Um, so I admit that, you know, moving from memoir um, to more of fiction and, and um, horror, I guess, it almost feels like, okay, there's a barrier, right? I don't have to be this person that I am on the page. I can inhabit many characters and inhabit many lives. And I can say um, many things without being worried about getting sued. So, you know, I can, I can say shit and get away with it. (laughs) So that's the freedom. No one should write a memoir. um, If you are a woman for your first book, that's what I tell people. You can't hide, You can't hide. but you can hide behind horror. (laughs) That's so funny. No, and, that's a beauty, and, it, and yeah. it's something really interesting. That again, I, I've just kind of found across a, a different, a full array of horror writers. Is you know, you have some of them that are so ready to just like dive into their own triggers, and you have those who are are way more interested in exploring the trauma of others. You know, so do, I guess you would say, do you do you exist in between those two styles? I think so. I mean, I've drawn a lot of personal trauma. So there's a lot of, I guess, emotional truths in my fiction. And you would have to know me to know what they were. Um, and then, of course, you know, I do draw on people I know, like either anecdotes from them or their lives or whatever, right? Because that's what um, I think is my a background in nonfiction. I am always drawing around the world, right? And then I add this metaphor, I guess, the horror metaphor that the lens of the candy, I slap it on. And then somehow it becomes, I guess, a horror story. <laughs> In, in many ways to many people. Um, 
So I don't really know what this collection is. I think um, in many ways it's hybrid. It could be, it's, it's kind of everything, right? It's like, here's my brain. Um, you know, there's some drugs in there and sprinkles, but you could eat my brain <laughs> if you were a zombie. Um, okay. So, you know, there, there are a wide range of family dynamics in the majority of the stories in this collection. Um, I kind of think of the unity of the women in the basket swimmers versus the family in kind face, cruel heart who are victims of their circumstance, but they still rage really brutally on each other versus grandmama Wu in noodly delight, who is borderline violent and hilarious and very, very protective. Um, if, Listeners are familiar with your memoir, The Woo Woo. I think the question of your own personal family history becomes obvious in relation here. We've already kind of touched on it. Do you also think, though, that writing about these subjects and writing about kind of what we're talking about now is because there's an appetite for nuances of trauma from Western audiences? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I wanted to address, actually, in in the book. Um, in the in one of the stories, um, the ugliest girls, um, it's actually, um, in many ways, it's like a response to trauma porn of how women of color, especially when you write memoir, you're asked to kind of perform your trauma every night on stage. And it's almost like therapy in many ways. And the audience, the white audience feels like they can ask you any question, right? Um, nothing's off limits. And so, um, so the leeches in many ways, it's like, here are the memories, you know, you harvest them for, you know, the public's consumption. Right. And, and so I think in many ways we are asked to perform trauma as marginalized writers and women of color. But, um, I think, you know, we shouldn't shy away from these topics because, you know, things happen. Um, life isn't all wonderful, even though we want it to be, um, but I think there are different ways of telling that trauma um, that we can live with, right? Um, I mean, I've had people tell me, you know, you're so insensitive to these horrible topics, you're cruel or whatever, um, when you write about mental illness. Um, but at the same time, you know, it is my life story, for example. It's how I see the world. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, there's humor that goes with that tragedy, right? Um, and I think there's ways that we can tell our own stories that to, I guess, reclaim them in many ways, right? I don't want to be giving you, here's my trauma porn, you know, enjoy it. Um, I want to give you, you know, here is, yes, it deals with trauma, but, you know, here it, it's, it's an ice cream sundae with some meat on it, if that makes sense, right? It's a mix. Um, I guess I'm going to use the food metaphor. I love, yeah, keep going. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Ice cream sundae with like, I don't know, sausages on top, a little bit of tendons, maybe a human heart, you know, it's a mix. You are a horror writer, even if you don't want to admit it fully. <laughs> um, and Maybe gore. <laughs> maybe gore. True, true, true. Um, I, I guess I would also ask in that case, um, you know, we talked about, I, I definitely do think there is an appetite for, for, stories that involve trauma and nuances of it from Western culture. Um, do you think there is an appetite for these kind of stories in, you know, quote unquote, Eastern or Asian cultures and circles? Is that happening more or is it something that is not really open to discussion in the open way that you're discussing it? 
I wonder, I'm always thinking about that because, you know, the supernatural is really prominent in Eastern culture, right? You can't escape it, right? Um, usually in, in Western culture, you can beat the monster or whatever. Here, like in Eastern culture, the monster is always there. It's always in a happy ending and there's nothing you can do to escape fate. So I wonder about, you know, I think there's something almost fatalistic about Asian culture and how we think about our lives, right? And um, how our ghosts are always with us. Whereas in Western culture, it seems like there's this divide between the living and dead. Um, and I think with, with this book in particular, I wanted to really merge these ideas, like who is dead and who is actually alive and maybe you know, the dead are more alive than humans, right? Or the people living, right? So I'm always thinking about that as well. As an avid science fiction reader as well, I do kind of love trying to find and make connections and ties to different works from single authors. Um, but I really love when a short story collection in particular has the kind of unity uh, that world and universe building novels offer would you say that the stories in tell me pleasant things all kind of exist in one contained universe i think so i think they live in our every day like right now like where we are <laughs> or at least you know my brain thinks it lives in one universe um yeah i think you know past and present it all exists i mean the last story for example it's historical fiction but there's fantasy elements right and hopefully you know when readers get to the last story it feels like it hasn't no time has passed at all right because mythology is all around us it's timeless it's you know it's immortal zombies go on forever just like us and would you say that there is a greater kind of Lindsay wong cinematic universe cohesivity that applies to your works as a whole maybe maybe i mean i never think of myself as like it's a it's a lindsey wong thing but maybe there is because i mean anything can happen right um you know it's it's all there right the woo woo and then you know there's ghosts and demons and zombies you know it all exists right the chinese families who randomly get possessed <laughs> right at the dinner table <laughs> It could happen, yeah, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Like, don't discount it, <laughs> right? I believe it will happen to me one day, and I'll write a memoir about it. <laughs> I cannot wait. And, you know, as an author, your stories uh, really are clearly tied to your Asian identity, uh, which I think comes across pretty clear to anybody who's read your work. I did also find it interesting that, um, especially in this book, and you kind of touched upon it earlier, where you can kind of inhabit different voices um, as you're writing, you speak as uh, women, as young men, as young gay men, you take on multiple gender roles, there are trans characters, there are queer characters, um, and all written in the first person. How does your gender identity shape the type of stories you want to tell and the voices you use to tell them? Yeah, that's that's interesting because I, I never really think about that when I'm writing. Um, it's really just who is speaking to me right now. Um, so there's, yeah, there's multiple voices, there's multiple characters. And sometimes it just seems like this character's story needs to be told. Um, you know, I, I come from a very traditional Chinese background. And, and so, of course, you know, Asian identity is going to be what I'm writing about. Um, you know, 
it's something that you can't escape, especially, you know, with COVID and the uprise of, you know, Asian hate crimes, right? And so being like told, like, you know, if you brought the virus here. Um, and so that's something I've always been thinking about. But yeah, I think for me in this story, it was really important for me to capture the different voices. Um, because I think with, um, you know, short story collections, you can go, I think there's that danger of everything sounding the same. Right. And I wanted to ha- capture like a multiple of voices, multiple of experiences all within um, the Chinese diaspora communities or the Chinese immigrants, um, because there's a variety. I'm sure all ghosts are not the same. Like they're probably like yelling at each other in the afterlife and being like, I don't like how I'm being portrayed. <laughs> so that's, that's, I think, you know, my, my way, maybe I'm like a medium, like channeling my ancestors or like ghosts from like the Chinese afterlife or like you need to tell my story. And so it's the first person, you know, becomes that, that starting point. Um, I do have some stories in the third person, but they're a close third person or omniscient. And right, I think it's, right. you know, there's something about being perched on, you know, the character's shoulder or whatever and telling them what to do. So in many ways, you know, you are haunting that character, um, but you're not inhabiting their body. So I, I think I always think of writing as I am, you know, possessing a character or I am haunting a character. And, and that's sort of like the way I do things because it's, it's there, right? And you get to say what you want in fiction and do whatever you want. Um, but in real life, right, you kind of have to be nice. Do you prefer to possess your characters or do you prefer to haunt them? Mm-hmm. I think I like possession better. Mm-hmm. It just feels more hands-on, right? Because <laughs> you get to be inside their body. And there's so much you can do with the first-person voice. You can play with the syntax. You can do all sorts of things. I mean, third-person too, but there's something really fun about being someone else. I mean, I never want to be, you know, I never want to stay here i would love to be like i'm gonna wake up and be in someone else's body and have their own life um i don't know maybe that's ridiculous but like wouldn't be great like you can choose to be someone new the next day and you don't have to be you of course if i could possess um a ghost for a day yeah i'm jumping on that yeah right that would be fun (laughs) yeah you could switch, and I'm like, I would switch bodies with you now because I want to go to Montreal. I've never been. Oh my god! So, well, come to Montreal. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, like you could just choose and just like travel around the world and and like be different people. So I guess also apart from you know, like we were just kind of touching on, um, you you definitely wanted to show the fact that the Asian story, the Asian immigrant story, the Asian female story is not one big bowl of noodles. Why specifically did you want to frame this collection through the lens of immigrant Chinese identity? Mm -hmm. I just think there's something really, um, something to be said about it because we see this immigrant story as really conventional. Like there's lots of suffering, right? And it's always serious and, and people, you know, sometimes they secede and then they end up buying, having three children and a nice big house. It's the American dream story. Or, you know, they come here and they suffer and suffer and suffer and then they die, right? There's nothing in between. Um, and I think as Chinese immigrants, we don't get to see our story have some joy and levity to it. Um, if there is, you know, it's a satire, like crazy rich Asians. 
And I think um, there was this that movie that won a bunch of Oscars everywhere, all at yeah, once. Yeah, everything, 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 everywhere, all at once. Yeah, that one, right? And I think there's something special about it because you know it was absurd, it was ridiculous, and there was like sci-fi elements. But then we got to see that immigrant story told in a different light, and that's something I wanted to to hopefully do with this collection um, to show that this is another way of telling the story and and looking at it Um, because yes, you know, we don't, yes, there's suffering, but there's also joy and levity and some weird shit can happen too. Right. (laughs) And we can also laugh because, you know, I think Asian people are traditionally seen as like very serious and very stoic. Right. Um, But they're, these characters are really real people and they're hilarious and they make fart, and jokes. They make fart jokes and they're really, really funny about their fart jokes too. Mm-hmm. And they say whatever they want. Yeah. 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 That's why I love grandmama Wu so much. I know. That's what I want to do when I'm, when I'm old, I'd like go around and get a stick and hit people. Just be a zombie grandma. And pretend I didn't know this. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do that. I should pretend I'm like, you know, go on the bus and like, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see you. <laughs> I can't do that now because I'll get in trouble. But when I'm really old or if I'm a zombie, no one's No, okay. it'll be fine at that point. We've actually pretty quickly gotten through the majority of my questions here today. But I did kind of want to ask as an ending note, um, since the book has been out now for a couple months, I, I'm, I'm almost, I've gotten used to recording episodes for the podcast really around the release date for a lot of authors. I tend to talk to them. I'm often one of the first people that they're speaking to on their publicity tours, I find. Tell Me Pleasant Things has been out for a few months now. You had a readership when the galleys came out. I read this book for the first time, I think about six months ago. Um, and I hated, oh, I, I hated that I also couldn't put it on my best of 2022 list because I enjoyed it so much and I read it in 2022. Since there has, at this point, been a fair amount of press coverage, what have been some surprising reactions for you in regards to the book's reception? Yeah, I think I was surprised that a lot of people liked it. Um, I think because I, I had a feeling I, people told me it was weird. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> um, and so I'm like, oh, like people actually, you know, enjoyed it and they found the humor there. But then I, at the same time, I kind of expected it having people tell me like they don't understand the book. Um, they're just like, what is this book about? Can you tell me about what this book is about? Can you explain this story to me? And I, I do wonder if a lot of male writers get that. Um, I don't know if it's a gendered thing or if they truly don't get it. Um, because usually, you know, I don't know how many writers are asked to explain their work, right? It almost feels like a defense sometimes when you're being interviewed about your work, right? Because usually the reader goes in having an idea of the work and they ask you to confirm or, or whatever. Um, but here I remember doing press and people were like, you know, I really don't get it. I don't know if you're joking or not. Is this supposed to be funny? Can you, you know, explain this line to me? Right. And then, um, we'll do the interview yeah. afterwards. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, okay. So we're doing like prep before we do an interview. So that has been really, um, interesting to huh. me. Yeah. So it's, it's been different, I think, um, because I think, with the woo-woo, it was so, 
I guess everyone understood it in many ways. They just thought, you know, you're just being mean or it's cultural or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think it's it's something, you know, to be said, right? Um, people not understanding the culture, some people not understanding tone, um, some people not understanding what memoir is, right? Or like with, you know, I think it happens to a lot of women of color authors that people mistake you for your characters. Right. Um, like I had an interviewer say, tell me like, are you that teenage girl in um, Wreck Beach, you know, who has sex with her cousin? And I'm like, well, first of all, I'm not a teenager. Um, I did not grow up in East Bath, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, yeah, this is really not memoir. And did you get me confused with another Asian author, you know? Um, so that has sort of been my experience. It's always interesting, I think, touring and also exhausting um, in many ways. I'm also like, not, I'm very shy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this. No, not at all. I'm like incredibly shy. No, no, I am like in real life, even though every, that's why everyone's like really surprised when they meet me because some of my, like the woo-woo in this book, people are like, oh, you're, you know, you're mouthy or whatever. And I'm like, no, it's not. I'm like the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't tell you what I'm thinking. Um and so I think that's always a thing when I, when I do promotion, because I'm not the person they expect from the book. <laughs> I mean, I will also just say, it sounds like those people are bad readers. I don't want to say it. I'll say you know, it. <laughs> people. Okay, you can say it. I don't want to get in trouble. I'm joking. No, I'll say it, but I, <laughs> no, but it's true. I, well, because I think like that's, yeah. that's something that comes with with a book being published, like, and especially, you know, I'm not also here to just blow smoke up your ass for, for lack of a better term. Um, but it really is a centered collection. It is a smart collection. It's well written. It's consistent. I, you know, if you're not catching on to those things and if you're not catching on and understanding your voice as an author, as, it is written in this book, then you're not reading it right. That's so nice of you to say, <laughs> but thank you. But, but maybe, you know, humor doesn't translate to everyone, right? That's oh, yeah, maybe that's it too. It is subjective, yeah. but at the same time, maybe people also don't understand tone yeah. as well when you're reading. Fair. It, could, it could be that, to, just to be generous to, <laughs> to readers. But, but then I don't know. Like I'm sure like if there was like a male writer, would they pretend to understand mm-hmm. his work? Mm-hmm. Right, you know, I—that's I, what I wonder. I'm always curious. Like, so like I like to like switch bodies with a male writer and just to see. I'm gonna think about that. I'm gonna ask the next male author I interview at the start of the interview. What did any of this mean? Were you that man on the beach in that part of the story? Where, where are you in this? Yeah, yeah. I want to know. <laughs> Tell me. I'm like listening to the podcast. I want to know exactly what they say. Maybe they'll be too upset. <laughs> Because they'll be like, are you not taking me seriously as an artist? <laughs> I'll follow up. I'll follow <laughs> because up. Because there's this thing. Yeah. Okay. Because there's this thing where women of color, they think like, you know, you don't have an imagination, right? Everything is memoir and everything is like based on you. And you're like, well, have you heard of emotional truth? And they're like, no, tell <laughs> me more. And you're like, oh, okay. You should write a book about that. <laughs> tell me more about emotional truth, <laughs> a nonfiction study about being an author in Canlet. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, Lindsay, it was really fun talking to you today. Oh, thank you. It was really fun chatting with you, too. I'm, I admit I was nervous because I'm always scared about meeting new people. I'm very shy. I'm like a shy yeah, ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, no, no worries. This was great. Um, again, 
loved the collection. Cannot wait to see what you think of next. Um, cannot wait to see what's next in the canon of the, of the Lindsay Wong cinematic universe. And come to Montreal. Yes, I will. Thank you. Come to Winnipeg and experience uh, minus 40 degree weather and 56 layers of clothing. We'll see. The great for zombie use stories. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank you listeners. Bye.